we're liberated, and we're miserable. That's a title of a chapter in Christine Emba's new book, Rethinking Sex, A Provocation, and what I think a lot of people will relate to. The sexual revolution held lots of promises of freedom and liberation, but in many ways, it just hasn't delivered. We're in the midst of a sex recession, marriage is in decline, and a recent Pew survey found that nearly half of American adults say that dating has gotten harder for most people over the last 10 years, and fully half of single adults have given up on dating entirely. Women know this, men know this too, but many are not willing to talk about it publicly because to critique where the West has landed on sex and intimacy is to critique feminism and to question the overreach of Me Too. Add to that, to focus on relationships between men and women is to risk offending the progressive consensus, which sees the whole conversation as reinforcing heteronormative discourse. Christine Emba wades into these troubled waters in her debut book. I think that one of the great losses that we're beginning to see sort of talked about and are trying to come to terms with now is that suddenly so many people have chased a fiction of what freedom looks like, what sex looks like, and they're finding that it's left them empty-handed. And that's, that's sad for anyone, you know, male or female. Christine Emba is an opinion columnist and editor at The Washington Post. She joins me today to talk about the mess between men and women and how we might get out of it. Christine Emba is my guest today on Lean Out. Christine, welcome to Lean Out. Thank you so much for having me. It's really great to have you here. I found this book quite surprising for a lot of reasons. You go after some sacred cows here. As the subtitle suggests, this is a provocation. And add to that, I found your politics in the arena not necessarily fitting into any particular box, which is so refreshing to read in this moment that we're in right now. I want to start with your background. You were a Christian evangelical who converted to Catholicism. You did write about in this book, Remaining a Virgin into Your 20s. How did you decide to write a book about the sex crisis between men and women. So <laughs> all of that intro is true. And first of all, I also actually really like the fact that my politics are not that easily identified, frankly. In the first sort of review of Rethinking Sex that came out, Michelle Goldberg in the New York Times said the same thing. She was like, Christine Emba is a heterodox thinker. She quotes Roger Scruton, but also Andrea Jorkin. And I think that's helpful because I think both sides have, have some wisdom here. But to your question, or back to your main question, you know, I'm also, I'm an opinion columnist at the Washington Post, and my focus is ideas and society. And, you know, during the Me Too moment in 2017, 2018, I was writing a lot about these cases, about the Harvey Weinsteins, the Matt Lowers, but I was also very interested in the the not so cut and dried cases, the cat person the Aziz Ansari, these situations mm. that were consensual and so not criminal, but still sort of deeply bad that so many young women and men, but especially women, seem to relate to, seem to think was the norm. And, you know, that made me think of my own situation, my own, my own friends and peers, how sort of starting from the outside of almost the, the modern sexual world looking in to becoming part of it myself. I'd come across again and again, 
you know, both this, this disconnection between what people actually wanted, real relationships of care and what they were settling for or what they were settling for and even saying was good, you know, fly by night hookups in which the next morning they were left disappointed and sad or pretending not to care and not to have feelings or pretending that sex didn't mean anything to them, even though it obviously did. And I was interested in exploring these tensions, you know, how did we get to this place? What parts of the sexual revolution and feminist movements had perhaps taken a turn from their original destination? And what were the assumptions that I and my peers were holding about sex or what the sexual world and culture looked like that might actually be hurting us rather than helping us to the human flourishing that we desire? These were more personal questions, I think, than just the top line stories. And there were so many of them that it did feel like it needed a book to explore. Mm. So much to pull from what you just said. So the the deeply bad, I mean, the impression I get from the book, you've interviewed so many people here. The deeply bad is like bad sex, bad encounters, uncomfortable sex, sort of uncomfortable relationships. According to Pew, nearly half of American adults say that dating has gotten harder for most people over the past 10 years. We know we're in the midst of a sex recession. I'm a bit older than you. In my lifetime, I've seen the norms I grew up with completely collapse. Your second chapter is titled, We're Liberated, But We're Miserable, which I took a screenshot of that and sent it to so many friends. How did we get to a place where women and men are so unhappy with their romantic lives. Yeah, you know, I I quote that same Pew statistic in an excerpt that I wrote for the Times. According to, I think, that same survey, it also says that fully half of single adults have like given up on even looking for a relationship or dating at all. And navigating our love lives has always been difficult. But today, the general outlook has just become, you know, not just jokingly sad, but, but actually depressing. And the pessimism comes at a moment when we might actually expect the opposite to happen, right? You know, we're living in a golden age of sexual freedom. The average age of first marriages is rising. Birth control is widely available. You know, most people are accepting of premarital sex. We've sort of breached the ramparts of repression post the sexual revolution and the wall of silence that supposedly prevented us from expressing our sexuality has fallen. And yet it hasn't made us happy many people today actually feel a bit lost. And I would suggest that part of the reason why is that our definition of freedom is a little bit, actually a lot skewed. You know, we have defined freedom in many cases in sort of a a liberal capitalist society as the freedom to go your own way, to not be bound by any rules or restrictions, to not be bound by other people, to not have ties, basically. Freedom means the freedom to move, basically. But that freedom can look a lot like loneliness. You know, when you excise your feelings from the conversation, when you forfend to connect with anyone for fear of dimming your career prospects because you're in a relationship, when you try to have meaningless sex because you're afraid that, you know, having feelings might trap you, then yeah, you end up not being able to share your feelings and and being alone. And that is what, you know, freedom has looked like for a lot of people. At the same time, I also think that people do need boundaries to help structure and shape behavior and move them in the direction that they would like to go, basically. Boundaries so that they know what to expect when entering a sexual encounter with someone, so that a first date looks like a first date and not, as one woman told me, we had sex, but then he surprised choked me. 
out of nowhere. And and that was frightening to me. What should I do? I think there's a lot of confusion and a lack of connection in this moment. Mm. I think you're so right about that. I do want to talk about feminism for a moment here, because this is one of the sacred cows that you are approaching. In terms of feminism, there's a point in the book that really surprised me where you were talking about how this kind of history that we have actually primed young women to be the kind of sexual partners that young uncommitted men want, you know, buying into this idea of no strings attached, transactional sex with really low expectations on the act and on account of porn, often quite degrading things. Walk me through your main criticisms of feminism in this context. So in Rethinking Sex, I, I do a fairly deep dive, or I hope it's a deep dive, into how the feminist movement, in my opinion, was kind of co-opted over the course of the sexual revolution and into the moment that we that we live in today. The early feminist movements really had a revolutionary idea in mind, you know, smashing a patriarchal system that centered male preferences and toxic value systems and replacing it with a vision in which women and their distinctive concerns and femaleness were equally valued and respected. But, you know, our sort of post-feminist movement asks for less. You know, I try to work through how this shift happened in the book, but rather than dismantling a male-dominated system, they redefined female progress as just gaining power within the existing system, which meant adopting its values. So, you know, instead of a revolutionary, almost utopian society where women were valued as women and ostensibly female virtues were actually taken seriously, female sexual desire taken seriously, female humanity taken seriously, we just kept the same ideals and and stuck a woman in. So the boss is still the ideal and empowerment in sort of this post-feminist movement just looks like a hashtag girl boss, Mm. you know, playboy was still fine as long as women could be play girls. And so again, it was just the same old and in many cases, really bad standards. Playboy is a perfect example, just women shoehorned into, into meeting them and being told that just being like sort of the prevailing male is actually all the success and equality that we need. That's actually how far we need to go. And we're, we're done once we get there. So when it comes to dating, it looks like women and men accepting this misogynistic approach to sex as the ideal one, and women even trying to adopt the male ideal misogynistic stance in order to wield what's seen as its power. And so many of the stories that I heard in interviews for Rethinking Sex had to do with this and the fallout. And I mean, to be fair, it's not working for men either, which you point out in the book. Right. I mean, and we can talk about incels later, but just the sort of median experience of men, we're seeing that, you know, a lot of men, when you look at the data around the dating apps, it's a very small pool of men doing all the dating and that many, many men are not finding dates, they're not finding companionship, or they're finding the kind of empty encounters that, you know, are feeling quite uncomfortable to them as well. Right. Men aren't asked in this sort of society to be better or more loving or more open people themselves. And they also still face the same pressure to lean into stereotypical roles, making it harder for them to ask for and achieve the connection that many of them actually want. And then if this standard is upheld, again, the worst, most stereotypically masculine and misogynistic man is is still the winner here. And men who don't act like that or who can't live up to that sort of bad 
frankly, ideal feel left out and they end up feeling like the losers. And you talked about the sex positivity movement and that in the book, you're saying that this, there is this thread of feminism that was kind of profoundly anti-sex, if I'm understanding correctly, and particularly heterosexual sex, and that didn't necessarily believe it was possible to have healthy sex in the context of patriarchy. But you point out the sex positivity movement makes the opposite mistake by refusing to judge any behavior whatsoever. Am I understanding that argument that you're making correctly? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, in the book I talk about, I spend a lot of time in rethinking sex, trying to figure out where the current moment, how we got to the current moment and how it diverged from what the original goals of the feminist movement and sexual revolution are, right? And, you know, I have to point out that there were good things there, that those revolutions happened for a reason. but so much of that conversation was co-opted and warped. And the idea of sex positivity was one of a key loss, actually. The feminist journalist Ellen Willis coined, you know, the phrase sex positivity in a very specific context. She was writing against feminists in the in the movement who said that, you know, sex with men wasn't possible, that to be a good feminist, you had to separate entirely from heterosexuality and go your own way, that change was never going to happen. And she wrote about being sex positive in the sense that, no, actually, women's sexual desire, women's desire for a relationship, women wanting to relate to the other sex matters and is good and is fine. And we can be positive about that. But today, the idea of sex positivity has ballooned beyond its you know, original scope to what I call uncritical sex positivity in rethinking sex. And it's not just the idea that women's sexual pleasure, sexual desire is valid, but it's the idea that actually being a, a good modern woman or a, a good liberal or a good feminist means sort of just being up for it all the time with an emphasis on adventurousness and, and never saying no. Being sex positive in the current moment seems to mean just having as much sex as possible and always enjoying it. And so, you know, in the past, you know, pre-sexual revolution, if there was a pressure to, to say no, to not have sex, for many women now, they feel a pressure to have sex, to acquiesce, to even things that they might not personally want, just to show that they're they're kind of good modern women. And I think a lot of people are doing this even as they resent it acquiescing to essentially consensual sex, even as they wish that they weren't because they feel as though they should. There's a pressure there too, which is the opposite, I would say, of freedom, right? This standard that you're forced to live up to despite your own wishes, whether if it's negative or or positive, it's, it's still pressure. Mm-hmm. Just putting my own cards on the table, I'm quite critical of feminism at the moment, although I grew up in very progressive circles. And part of it was what you were talking about earlier, the girl boss thing and understanding that somehow there was some wrong turn where we as women had defined equality as you know, the ability to compete as men in the labor market. And that there's just so much more to being a woman than that. Right. Totally. But then also, you know, with the excesses of me too, and I, I clearly say the excesses, there's a moment in the book that I just found amazing. So you're, you're quoting Ezra Klein in relation to this California bill on adopting affirmative consent standards for sexual assault investigations. And I just want to read this quote. It will settle like a cold winter on college campuses, throwing everyday sexual practice into doubt and creating a haze of fear and confusion over what counts as consent 
This is the case against it and also the case for it. And later he says, men need to feel a cold spike of fear when they begin a sexual encounter. Your thoughts? Yeah, no, that was, (laughs) I found that piece so, so fascinating. And, you know, I say in the book, I'll read, you know, the sentences that I write after that. There's something to be said for this sort of fear. Perhaps men should be nervous, so nervous that they make an analysis of their actions in the same way women do. Yet even a stricter, more punitive version of consent doesn't solve the deeper problems of our sexual culture. And it creates others too. You know, not every sexual misstep is a crime, but if we enact sort of a a legal regime around what sex is good and what sex is bad and punishing people based on consent, we ignore the fact that our rules are so impoverished that they're, they're easy to misconstrue. Plus, as is the case with everything else in our criminal justice system, we end up levying the harshest punishments against the poorest or brownest or otherwise most undefended, not necessarily those most in the wrong. And so in the book, in Rethinking Sex, one of the threads running through the entire book is that the idea of consent as the standard by which we judge sex is impoverished and it's not enough for for a number of reasons. Consent is a legal criteria. It's an excellent and necessary baseline. The baseline is the floor. You know, it's not the ceiling. And we should be striving towards something higher than just that baseline. And I suggest that, you know, the ideal that we should be striving for is is willing the good of the other. And this is an ideal that, no, is not, you know, criminally enforced or enforced by the state. It's something that we have to sort of enforce ourselves. We have to have social norms and a social understanding of what sex looks like and what the good looks like to reach for something higher. Yeah. And I mean, back to the actual fear piece. I mean, one thing I hear in interviews a lot from women in their late thirties, early forties is, and I want to talk about this in a moment too, because there's a whole genre of books around this, but is this idea that men are just scared now of asking women out and that that is very counterproductive in this human flourishing that you talk about in the book that, you know, so many of us want, we want partners, we want a home life, we want a domestic life, we want a satisfying romantic life. But if men are too scared because of that fear that Ezra Klein writes about, I mean, is that not counterproductive for all of us? Right. I mean, tacking back to earlier in our conversation, I I talk about that too in the chapter, we're liberated and we're miserable. The idea that because there's there's sort of no clear standard for what to do apart from maybe the very baseline of consent, like don't rape someone, there's also no clarity for men as to what they're supposed to do or allowed to do, or you know what their actions will be read as and whether they'll be punished for them. So you know, in a world where sex is everywhere apart from just non-consensual sex specifically. There are a lot of men who are who find themselves afraid that, you know, if I ask out a woman, maybe she'll assume that I'm going to pressure her into sex. Or if I talk to someone at work, is that going to be read as a sexual thing? Because there aren't really any sort of boundaries between how we how we understand our social norms around sex. And so rather than finding themselves in that position, they just don't. <laughs> they just would rather not. They only go to dating apps where at least, you know, it's sort of explicit that everyone is there for dating or give up on the scene altogether. And, you know, I talked to a number of psychologists about this too, especially psychologists working with kind of younger people. You know, one said to me, young men are terrified. Men in their 20s are terrified and they talk about it a lot because there's just like no clarity about what they're allowed to do, what they should be doing, 
how women will respond apart from just, I guess, the rule of don't rape someone, but you know, that's a really low bar. <laughs> we need a lot more clarity than that to get anywhere. Yes. Yeah. You do in the book, getting to insults now. So this genre of books I'm speaking about is this genre of women who are in their late thirties, early forties. They are alone. They're childless. They kind of go on this quest to understand their romantic lives and often don't come up with a huge answer at the end of it. There's a lot of sympathy for that position. We don't hear much sympathy for incels. You have expressed sympathy in this book for incels. Yeah. You know, I have in this book and I actually have in the past, a couple of years ago, to some backlash, I wrote a piece in the post entitled, Men Are in Trouble, Incels Are Proof. You know, incel for the readers who are not familiar is sort of short for involuntary celibate. And it's kind of a self-imposed name that some mostly young men have given themselves and they define themselves by their inability to find a sexual or romantic partner. And so in this book, you know, I, I do take pains to point out that I am actually not sympathetic to what seems to be in many cases an incel held ideal that, you know, men deserve a woman and they deserve the woman that they want. They deserve a hot chick who will do whatever for them because that's not true. You know, that's not fair. Nobody deserves someone else. But I think the discussion of loneliness, the fact that people want a romantic partner, want a connection and find themselves unable to find it for various reasons. I do think that that is sad, you know, and that inability to connect with someone to find a partnership that contributes to, you know, your human flourishing would be sad for a man and is sad for women too. And I think that one of the great losses that we're beginning to see sort of talked about and are trying to come to terms with now is that suddenly so many people have chased a fiction of what freedom looks like, what sex looks like, and they're finding that it's left them empty handed. And that's, that's sad for anyone, you know, male or female. Indeed. Indeed. And I would say, I mean, we all do deserve love, right? We all deserve connection and that that doesn't get talked about enough in that discussion. So I'm so happy to see that you say that. And another piece that you talk about in the book is, you know, you're in your thirties now and the biology here (laughs) that we women have this biological clock that is ticking away in the background. That is also something that doesn't get talked about. Like nobody sat me down in the sort of feminist milieu that I was in and my 20s and said, you do have to do this by a certain point. Talk to me a little bit about that. What comes with that, the uncertainty, the loneliness, the acute kind of pain of knowing that your biology is is on a, a clock here. Yeah. You know, I mean, part of rethinking sex, part of the conceit is both talking about how we've misunderstood consent as a rule for sex and also about assumptions that we've made about what sexual culture should look like, what sex means, what we should act like that are not correct, that are faulty or even hurting us. And one of the assumptions that I critique is the idea that in sex, men and women are basically the same, right? Which to me kind of seems obvious, but, you know, in writing this into the book, it felt almost like a taboo to say, you know, men and women are not the same, actually. They have different concerns and different vulnerabilities when it comes to sex. And for women, the biological clock is definitely a major one. And, you know, in this book, I'm arguing for the idea that we should be willing to go to the other. And that means, you know, seeing the other person and keeping their vulnerabilities and differences in mind. 
And for women, you know, that does mean for all that the sort of modern feminist movement is said anything that song, right? Mia Hamm versus Michael Jordan, anything you can do, I can do better. When it comes to biology, women and men are simply not the same. (laughs) And when it comes to trying to find a partner, if you want to have children, women have more urgency because, you know, our biology is different. And so when you think about treating someone fairly in a relationship and willing their good and caring for them, that would mean for women taking that into account, considering the fact that the female timeline might be different than the male timeline and, you know, not wasting someone's time when it comes down to it. And for women, I think we have for various reasons, and I I'm sort of looking at lean-in feminism and girl-boss feminism, this idea that you need to succeed in your career first and foremost rather than do anything else. This idea that we can almost pretend that truths of biology and fertility are are not real, that we can somehow escape them. But actually, if you want to be fair and honest to yourself and have that family or that connection that you're searching for, that might be something to think about early on a truth about yourself, something to keep in mind, not sort of ignore. Indeed. And just one last question before I want to talk and end on willing the good. But before we get to that, I recently had a a Cambridge scholar, Rob Henderson on the podcast, and he has this concept of luxury beliefs. I don't know if you're familiar, but I was thinking about that concept as well. This idea that certain views, you know, are fashionable in the elite classes, but have a huge impact on the lower classes. And we have seen elite marriage hold pretty steady, but working class marriage uh, completely fall apart. Did you think through that piece at all here? Yeah, no, absolutely. I am very familiar with that, that term, and I find it fascinating and so useful. And I think that it's, it's really evident here, actually. You know, when you look at the statistics for marriage, exactly, it is the elite classes who who want to say like, well, no freedom, feminism, that means that you should do whatever you want. Don't worry about getting married. Honestly, every family formation is great or none at all. Do what you will. It's great. And then they just end up in heterosexual marriages by the time they're 35 and go on to have very stable nuclear families. And the ones who don't, you know, elites who choose not to do that are still buffered from consequences because, you know, you might have money to pay for fertility treatment, say, if you ignore your biological clock and find yourself wanting a child late, or you have money to be a single parent or even simply a wealthy single person into old age that that doesn't matter as much. But then for non-elites who have sort of followed these directions, you know, don't find a partner, don't get married, have kids out of wedlock, like do whatever you want they are not buffered in the same way from the consequences that might come from this, whether it's trying to start a family alone and finding that really expensive and hard or being with multiple partners and then finding oneself with, with none experimenting throughout most of your youth and then finding yourself kind of alone later. And that looks different when it's not buffered by money and education and sort of a class cushion. And those are the people who end up hurt. Yeah, it's so great to be able to speak so frankly about that, because I don't think that piece gets spoken about enough. And another thing that doesn't get talked about, and we'll end with this, is is sort of religion and and religious thought. And so I thought it was so interesting that you drew on this Catholic saint for this idea of willing the good, and that you are introducing this religious concept into what has been a very secular conversation. Could you comment a little on that to close? 
Yeah, absolutely. You know, I talk about consent being the floor and not the ceiling, that we want better from our relationships, ideally, than a legalistic definition of, you know, well, rape didn't occur here, so it's fine. And I suggest willing the good of the other, which is actually Aristotle by way of St. Thomas Aquinas. And it's his definition of, of love, actually. And not just romantic love, like real care for the other person. And willing the good of the other, I argue, is a better standard for sex because it it asks us to see our sexual encounters as mutual, to actively care for the other person's well-being as much as we would our own. And in willing their good, it implies that we are actually trying to figure out what the good is, both broadly in terms of what the good of sex is, what good sex looks like in the world, and also for the other person. When I talk about religion in the book and my faith, I bring it up because I think people want context for, you know, how did this person decide to become an expert on sexual ethics? And I'm I'm not, you know, I'm a regular person trying to figure it out. But I do think that religious traditions are sort of a history of how we as people have come together and tried to think through big issues and create ethical frameworks that stand the test of time. So I think that it is silly actually to try and discard any sort of religious understandings of, you know, what sex might mean or what the good might look like because they're seen as old fashioned, like they worked (laughs) for a reason. So maybe there's some wisdom there, but willing the good of the other, I think is a helpful and useful standard because it's not necessarily just Christian or just Catholic. I think it's something that, you know, anyone could understand. I cite from, you know, Buddhist teachings and, you know, Jewish teachings in the chapter where I talk about how sex is meaningful and what willing the good looks like, because, you know, the golden rule this idea that they're that it's important to treat the other as you would like to be treated is is basically universal the idea actually that there is a higher good that we should look for you know that we should be aiming for and trying to embody and even trying again to embody when we inevitably fail that is in some senses a religious idea but it's it's valuable to anyone this this thought that we can be better than we are and that we should try and that our personal desires don't trump the well-being of other people. Well, that is a good place to leave it. This book has so much heart to it. It has a lot of empathy. And I think it's also a lot of courage to talk about these things so openly. So I really appreciate you coming on today. Thank you so much. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Out is hosted and produced by myself, Tara Henley. If you liked what you heard, please consider subscribing to my Substack at tarahenley.substack.com. 